Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, we just wrapped up a fascinating interview with serial entrepreneur Tigran Petrosian, who is building a platform for the annotation of data. And just before we hit record here, you were telling me that one of the key things you learned about uh, machine learning and data science was that autonomous vehicles require a lot of annotated data. So uh, what did you feel was the biggest takeaway from this this episode? What did you learn? that was Actually, actually there are several key issues that stood out that... I mean, just just training AI is a laborious task, and training uh, training it in autonomous transportation. Um, that's why it's it's taking so long to get driverless cars to get to that point where the cars are you, know, you can just jump in and and feel safe going somewhere, because uh, it has to know what to look for, and somebody has to go in there and actually label all of the things that it's seeing, all of the uh, the computer vision, the the cameras on it, what it's looking at. Um, is that a kid running across in front of the car? Is that a gopher? Is it a, a goat? What is that? And then, um, or just a ball running across. And then what action should be taken at that point because of that? And when, when you have, I don't know, 75 million hours worth of video that you're staring at trying to analyze, um, the the computer's pretty dumb. Uh, somebody has to go in there and train it all to begin with, and that's that's where the sanitation comes to play, and that that I found quite fascinating. I, I hope that one of the things that our audience will take from it is just how much goes into training these models. And it's easy from the outside if you if you don't build them or you don't know much about them to to feel as almost as though they're magic. They're just these vast algorithms that can do these almost incredible things, but somebody's got to go in and, and label those data. Somebody, somebody's got to feed it to them. Somebody's got to train it and load in industrial quantities of you know labeled examples for these algorithms to learn. And so hopefully on the other side of this interview, they, they will have a better understanding of sort of the nuts and bolts of machine learning. And they'll have a better appreciation for this this phrase I'm always coming back to, that it's, it's math all the way down. Right? There's no magic, right? It, it's just algorithms. It's only as good as the data you give it. And somebody's got to be responsible for managing all of that and building platforms around it. So that's what we talked about. Hopefully you get all of that and more from the interview. So without further ado, this is episode with Tigran Petrosian. Tonight we're joined by Tigran Petrosian. Tigran is a physicist turned tech enthusiast and entrepreneur who is passionate about building comprehensive teams and making products people love. He is currently building Super Annotate, an automated annotation tool that helps to speed up the computer vision lifecycle. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Tigran, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you are working on today? So, yeah, um, I'm 
I'm this co-founder and CEO at a company called Super Annotate. The uh, company name basically tells what we do and how we do it. Uh, we do annotation and we do it super well. Uh, my my background is in physics. I was born and raised in Armenia, did my physics my whole life. Uh, and then after doing my bachelor's, I moved to Switzerland to, my, to do my master's in physics. Eventually moved to biomedical imaging side of physics when I was doing my PhD there. Uh, was facing some problems of computer vision and uh, eventually got deep into understanding how computer vision can um, basically transform the whole radiology part of the business, uh, making sure radiologists do their work better, better diagnosis of different uh, diseases with computer vision. Of course, it's a huge problem still, a lot of problems in research. But I got fascinated by that. I was giving some TEDx talks across Switzerland at the time. And lucky enough, my brother was working on image segmentation technologies for computer vision and build a very um, kind of a image annotation tool, a simplistic tool with his tech that was accelerating a very specific annotation task called semantic segmentation that attracted a lot of attention from competition at the time, like uh, Scale ICO wanted to buy the tech and some of the other big players. We got quite excited about this opportunity and we decided to do it ourselves. So we dropped out of our PhD programs and started a company called Super Annotate, first very simplistic annotation tool for computer vision. And then eventually uh, became fully fledged uh, data infrastructure for AI, starting from annotation piece, collaboration of data scientists, engineers, annotators, reviewers, all working together to build high quality training data at scale. And then uh, building the uh, workforce marketplace to bring the right people to annotate actually the data for our clients. And then ultimately, once the data is labeled, we help our clients to make sense of the data, understand what to label next. So so give us a, some examples of who your, your client base is. I mean, just what industries do they work in? Yeah, I guess the one of the most obvious examples is the autonomous driving industry where every day they're, you know, driving thousands of miles of in the streets and labeling all the data. So uh, we're labeling a lot of data from the streets, like cars, human lanes, etc. There are uh, other, uh, like maybe less obvious examples, like for insurance, for example, I don't know, you want to estimate the roof damage or a car damage with computer vision. And there are tons of other examples in aerial imagery, let's say the drone flying through the fields and telling how the crops are doing and uh, where the diseases, etc. I mean, it's just some simplistic examples, but applications are really very widespread. Healthcare is another big industry we're in, uh, where, for example, and one of the applications to work, uh, we help uh, our clients to do a very good human pose estimation that helps with uh, online therapy, uh, like an online therapy platform kind of helping clients to get better at their exercises. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. 
So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. So I think a lot of people listening to this would not appreciate why annotation at scale is valuable at all. So so could you briefly walk through why that's that's such a big deal and why it really matters as as a crucial component mm-hmm. of the overall data infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, I mean, we every day we hear this fascinating applications of uh, machine learning AI, like ChatGPT probably is the most widespread known lately. But there are tons, right? We talked about autonomous driving and, uh, you know, Alexa is listening what you're saying. And, uh, you know, there's sentiment analysis from text or the, your voice or, um, so for all those applications, it seems magic, but what drives this innovation is actually the data behind the data. What is helping this machine learning algorithms, these models to learn. And, uh, by me, by data, I mean annotations of thousands to millions of images, text data, audio data that is being done iteratively. And each time you iterate your model, you expect your model as uh, so-called to perform better. For example, to identify car in the street with, I don't know, 95% accuracy and then 97, 98. Each time you want to increase that accuracy by 1%, 2% at the end. Sometimes you need even more data to label than before you get to that level. And it's not just how much data you label, but also what kind of data you label, understanding where your model doesn't perform well and really focusing on data edge cases. And then another key part is what exactly you label, how you label, how you understand the mistakes of labeling when you do it at scale. So these are a lot of problems when it comes to the data labeling, and this has kind of created multi-billion dollar industry already that is growing 20% uh, year over year. There are actually millions of people who are doing this full-time. Sorry, go ahead, please. Yeah, I'm assuming your annotations are searchable then, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I guess once you, you know, you do the data labeling within our platform, everyone can kind of query, for example, show me all the, I don't know, pedestrians I've labeled, uh, were let's say forward facing or backward facing based on the project instructions, you can always search, find, and that kind of helps you to really deep dive into specific uh, annotations and understand how your model performs. Yeah, let, let me let me step in and just provide a little bit of context for the, the people who aren't machine learning engineers. So, so if you're trying to build like a neural network that's able to classify flowers or something like that, you have to show it examples of labeled images. And then it learns a mapping between the pixels or the colors in the flower, the shape of the flower to the label, right? You can't just feed it a bunch of images and say, go figure it out. Like it wouldn't know what to do. So it's it's got to see a lot of examples of the right answer. And then it, it if you done it correctly, then it will be able to generalize to new images that it's never seen before. So you have to feed it lots and lots of images, which are labeled correctly in order for it to learn the underlying function at all. And the problem you're solving is that annotation piece is getting all of those images, right? So you might have 
50,000 images of flowers on your hard drive, but those are useless unless they have the labels too. And someone has to put those labels in. And some of these, especially larger models, you referenced ChatGPT earlier, take a gargantuan amount of data. Uh, and sometimes shaving off the the next little bit of accuracy or, sh or shaving on, I guess, adding one more percent of accuracy might take 80,000 more images or something like that to get from 96 to 97 to 98 and going on like that. So there's a lot of work involved in getting those images, annotating them correctly, managing all that version, controlling it. It's this big unsolved problem in data. These applications are incredibly data hungry and you're part of the plumbing that allows us to feed that monster and get it to... To, to learn new things. Yeah, that's such a perfectly explained example. I mean, you brought ChatGPT as a very prevalent case where, for example, you write a question and it gives you a very nice answer, right? And then sometimes we forget that behind that, there were so many similar questions asked and the answers were ranked by some people, whether it was right or wrong those people also kind of made sure that there is no graphic answers or no answers that was bad for uh, humans to see. And uh, this was actually, uh, you know, a lot of behind the doors work, which was this uh, annotation data, all this management, uh, nicely, nicely described trend. Yeah, yeah. But, well, and in that one, they also used RLHF, reinforcement learning and human feedback. So there's like a whole extra layer on top of it of, of producing these answers and a human being has to do it. Somebody has to go in and do it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the actual platform you've built? For, feel free to get into some of the technical details, and let's let's talk a little bit about Super Annotate. Mm -hmm. So when we initially built a platform, the tech uh, that we ha we had it very unique. Um, it was a platform that would identify the edges of the objects very accurately right away. And then the labeling of those objects become just one click. That was kind of a starting point. But eventually, as we built uh, the platform and expanded, uh, we identified a few very key problems in this space. First is how you build high quality data at scale. By high quality, I mean, imagine if you have millions of images or audio files. If someone tells you to label every single car or human or lane in that image, uh, the our experience shows, or generally experience shows that people do a lot of mistakes. Models are doing a lot of mistakes and every mistake can actually affect the model performance quite dramatically. And how you make sure that you have the high quality data. That this is first what our platform provides. So imagine you have million images you send to our system. It automatically goes through hundreds of people. They get the instructions what to label. They label those, whether they put a little box on it or through the edges of every object based on instructions what the customer wants to do. And then uh, this data goes to the next stage, the reviewers. So it automatically has a system where it goes to the reviewers. They check the quality of the labelers, uh, labeling data. They uh, see where the mistakes communicate back to the annotators or send it uh, corrected and send it to the next level, maybe next reviewer. Or the ad administrator who was giving a more holistic view of the data and understanding uh, any kind of uh, next level quality issues or what data has to go to the pipeline or not. Sometimes there are data engineers. And then ultimately, uh, once everything is correct, the data that is being finished and labeled goes back to our customers' pipelines, machine learning pipelines. Uh, maybe I can share more about what it is, but it's basically 
a system where you run models, iterate models, try to get some parameters, understanding how your model performs and do that in, in an iteration. Um, then once that data goes to the pipeline, basically the models are run and then you have this uh, matrices, the models uh, that kind of helps you to test uh, how your uh, prediction works after your model is built on that data. So this is one key piece of the platform. Create that infrastructure where millions of data can be labeled collaboratively by different roles of people working remotely anywhere you want. So can you Second, yeah. can you imagine a time moving forward where um, you've labeled practically everything and you no longer have to do the annotation anymore? Would yeah, this is... ever get to that point? <laughs> yeah, this is currently a very hot topic, how you automate the labeling and make sure that all the data is automatically labeled. And if we do that, basically we have solved all the machine learning problems. So there's no need for labeling anymore. The interesting problem is right now... Um, how you at least automate some part of it and make sure that human is all, only focused on the parts of the images or other data that uh, the model doesn't perform well. Uh, so that's a very key part of what we're providing with our platform. We also help clients to understand what to label, something called active learning, what to label that will affect the best to the model performance. Because not every data is... Uh, uh, helping to improve your model. Uh, so there's a famous, you know, saying in the space, if you have garbage in, you have garbage out, uh, you know, garbage in terms of the data. So you have to make sure you're labeling the right data, high quality data. So that's kind of a big um, direction in our space, how you automate more and more data. And at some point, of course, um, there's, a, there's, there's, it's an interesting part, right? A lot of data is created synthetically and being created as labels. A lot of data is being manually labeled or automatically labeled. So it all comes together in a combination to build high quality models. At some point, um, more and more data is being labeled automatically, of course. But the problem also comes with the problems that people solve in machine learning are constantly changing. So the data that you were using to uh, build some kind of machine learning problem is absolutely sometimes not usable to do even a close similar problem with a different camera or resolution of the camera, a different angle. So sometimes you have to start from zero. So this problem seems to be <laughs> never ending uh, so far. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Yeah, no, I'm not terribly worried about running out of stuff to annotate. Tell, tell me a little bit about your efforts to automate the process and what that looks like. How much of it is, is automated? Uh, what sorts of tasks are easy to automate and how the outsourcing platform part works? Mm. So um, uh, to automate, sometimes you just need a quick sample of data sets. Let's say you label 100 images. You run a simple model and the next 100 will semi-automate it. 
you see where the model doesn't perform well and you correct only those parts. So it's kind of semi-automated. Another way is you tell your system to uh, only annotate the images or data that uh, the confidence score of the model is less than, I don't know, 90% or 95%. And this is where you also only uh, annotate a small part of it and the rest is automated. Uh, big debate currently in our space is um, who should own the model, right? Because customers really want own the model and we don't want to run models on behalf of the customers when they have the, actually the best models. Mm -hmm. And what we do is usually we uh, set the output of their model, which is sitting into their pipelines, in their clouds, the output of their model into us as pre-labeled data. And then we basically correct some small portion of it to make sure that their model is what is being based to automatically label instead of us providing the labels. And this seems to be working with many of the customers we're working currently. So, so they train it and then the model outputs labels and then you correct it to semi-automate it. So, so you're just correcting a machine's output as opposed to starting over from scratch. And then that's yeah. sort of in a feedback loop. Exactly. And then we set a system that this whole process is automated. The data inflow, outflow, what is being labeled. It's it's a super uh, slick system. So how do you, you would you would say that? <laughs> how do you price your service then? Because part of it is um, letting the customer do the work, and part of it is you doing the reviewing. Uh, how do you, how do you price that for customers? Yeah. So uh, we are platform first company right so whatever what customers need is whether it's a label data um, they first buy the platform uh, as, as a subscription model and then based on how much data they need to be labeled whether it's how many hours of workforce it was being used or how many labels has been created to our platform they're being charged in addition on top of the platform so this is kind of a model of, uh, you know, combination of usage-based uh, plus subscription uh, that kind of helps to really make sure that we as a business, SaaS business, software as a service, can uh, really grow in terms of, you know, uh, more data being labeled, more workforce we're incorporated in, or whether more technology we're using to our system. But on top of that, uh, what we've built is this ML Studio part of the product. So once the data is labeled, we help our customers to really uh, get the right analytics, understand how this data is helping to improve their model, and how what are the biases, how they version those data sets, etc. And this becomes a really key piece as a solution we have in order to kind of drive uh, future future growth of us. Uh, so no matter how the data is labeled, we have this infrastructure that helps clients to really manage their data. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's going to be somebody listening to this podcast and saying, wow, you know, I think I could have a good career as a professional annotator. Um, what kind of background would I need to be good at this? And then uh, what kind of salary could I expect as a professional annotator? Yeah, uh, in fact, there are millions of people who are actually working full-time, part-time doing this job. 
most folks are in Southeast Asia. Of course, a lot of people are in the U.S., depending on geography needs uh, in Europe, security needs, etc. Um, it very much depends. Uh, for example, there are a lot of doctors annotating, for example, right? You need the right skills to look at biomedical imaging images uh, and then kind of do the right diagnosis so that machine learns. Sometimes you need very specific examples of I don't know, like uh, where are the damages in chips or in machinery, right? So um, as an annotator, like in a in a very high level, anyone can become an annotator because there's so many simple projects that are just like identify. I mean, I'm giving a simple case, right? What are the where are the cats and dogs? Where are the cars or humans? Or uh, so this is simple and it's so easy to do. But of course, there can be very complicated cases that requires a special uh, specialty annotators. And this is what's exciting about our marketplace of labeling teams that we have created, because we know which team has which expertise. So anytime the client come to us and says, hey, I need annotators we need which need who need this kind of expertise we will find them and we'll bring them into our platform and manage and guarantee the quality of that data talk to me a little bit about ml studio because it sounds like you're shading over into observability uh, and and um, introspection of the models and that's a really hot topic as well understanding how a given piece of data is being used by the model how it's modifying the internal weights and all of that so i'd, I'd like to hear more about that piece yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, you have somewhere seeding, let's say, millions of data that is being labeled. So as a data scientist you or data engineer, you really want to have a holistic view of, of that data, get the right analytics. For example, uh, I don't know, show me all the cars that is looking from behind and compare it to the model that I've just run and compare it to the first a hundred images that being annotated by this person, whatever it's, I'm just uh, giving random example. And from that, you're kind of getting the first level overview about how your model performs. Where are the cases that your model didn't run well, or where, what are the type of images you need to label next in order to improve that? That's a very easy first step. Uh, you know, having the holistic view about your model performance and the data set on specific edge cases. Um, second key part is, you know, uh, really comparing one model performance to another on the same images. For example, I've built multiple versions of your model and they perform differently. Let's say I took 100 images and I said, hey, this model please predict people uh, that are uh, size of the, like, I don't know, 10 pixels or less. And then there's another model. And then you put on top of each other and see which ones are really predicting that well. And then from that comparison, you can say, hey, this model is better than this one, but this model can be better on some other objects than this one. So that gives you a right um, idea how your models are and what you need to do to improve both on different ways. So are you at, are you looking at patterns of activation inside the models or is that more detail than you're getting into? Because it would be interested to know, I, I would be interested mm -hmm. in knowing, so you've got five different versions of a neural network trained on different subset of the data. 
I, I would be interested in knowing how each one is actually processing the images as you go through. With something like a convolutional neural network, you can look at the uh, how how uh, the convolutions are actually arriving at different abstractions in different layers, and then that's very fascinating work. And then that gives you some insight into what the models are actually doing with the data. And I wonder if ML Studio is capable of doing stuff like that. Yeah, so um, there are multiple parts of the MLOps pipeline. We're looking at the models from the data side, so how it affects the data and what to label. There are, okay. there are many different platforms that are specifically looking at like model parameters, trying to look at uh, some uh, other model-related stuff, but that has not much to do with the data, but model itself. Sure. We're more data focused, uh, but uh, there's so many platforms that are trying to handle other sides that we're kind of tightly integrating. If customer wants to have all that system set together, this is what we provide also. You know, as the time passes and as we uh, grow, uh, of course, data itself is already a huge uh, tackle. Uh, so eventually we may potentially try to tackle other model related areas, uh, but right now we're heavily focused on data-related matters on the model. What sort of data augmentation do you support? Um, so that's a good question. Um, you know, one of the areas we've been exploring a lot and build a tool set around it is uh, finding the edge cases. For example, right, like we realized that our model doesn't perform well in uh, I know, low light conditions. Um, we can generate similar type of data sets through our platform, through, uh, you know, this generative AI, you know, it's a fancy term, but we try to integrate that into our systems that instead of going back and taking similar images or videos, we just generate similar images uh, and then we label. Uh, sometimes it's auto-labeled and it needed also manually labeled and then feedback to the model and kind of trying to see whether the model improved. And if it's not, then try to generate new. Uh, so this is a very interesting way for us to kind of look at this problem. So how long has the annotation industry been around? I mean, when did it first get started and uh, how do you see this evolving over the next couple of decades? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, it started roughly about 20 years ago with this early rise of machine learning. Uh, on um, there was uh, uh, like a an, there was a structured data like tabular data for financial, for example, financial time series, and this gave rise to this uh, crowdsourced workforces when there was no ML expertise actually in these workforces that gave rise to this. You know, companies like Amazon Mechanical Turk or Open or Linebridge. So they're huge workforce companies. They would just do any uh, mechanical task, uh, like multi-vertical uh, annotation shops. And then there was this second wave that started roughly seven, ten years ago when the machine learning algorithms got better and better on unstructured data, like images, videos, text, audio, etc. And that gives rise to this enterprise ML companies, and then data labeling companies that were solving some specific specialized uh, annotation problems for those companies. I think this was the time when Scale or MyTAI uh, was acquired and some other labeling companies came in. 
And now, as we have grown a little bit more uh, in the last few years, starting from 2020s, the data centricity of AI became a prevalent driver. And uh, that gave rise to the companies like us, there was a label box, Snorkel, that gave that this gives rise to this new generation of AI companies that are just heavily relying on the data and its management and its automation and its uh, workflow, test and workflow systems, etc. Um, so just, <laughs> I kind of probably uh, tried to give a little bit more wide overview, but uh, these are the three waves. I think chat GPTs uh, will bring another huge wave uh, to this and another huge acceleration of what's going on here in the data-centric AI. So can you talk a little bit about how the nature of data itself is changing? I mean, getting data from uh, sensors is different than getting them from uh, video cameras, and that's different than radar or LIDAR. Um, and what what kinds of challenges do each of those different forms of uh, data uh, present to you? Uh -huh. um, so yeah, there are so many multiple data that is being labeled right now from different sensors. I mean, if you think about camera is itself is also a sensor uh, on just the visual data. That can be 3D, like LiDAR sensor, uh, etc. So for um, the data can be also like uh, from social media, it scraps some information and then labels. Um, anything now can be labeled and you have now machine learning algorithms on any type of data to learn and do some uh, prediction and analytics. So we're living in this very exciting time that it's not just a st uh, structured data, but any data can be uh, labeled, but each has its own challenges here, right? Um, and of course, uh, for example, computation for images to predict an object became so cheap that now it's running in so many devices already, even on smartphones. Um, of course, once you get to the 3D data, like LiDAR or, or radar sensors, uh, it gets a little bit more complicated. You are already have to uh, label 3D uh, objects or points in a 3D area. Um, it adds basically the size of the models gets much bigger. And in order to run it, you, you need more GPU power. On text, uh, it also got super cheap for NLP applications. I mean, ChatGPT, as you know, it's so cheap to just to type a question and it just immediately answers in a very cheap manner. Uh, so all these applications are evolving and nobody knows what's coming in one year, in two years, in five years. <laughs> that's, a, that's a crazy part about what's, what we're into right now. So I've been, I've been speculating on this idea of having a AI AI radio that just plays songs for you that it's making up as it goes and it's automatically reading whatever your expressions are, what your feedback is. And so when it spots something that it knows that you're not interested in, that you don't like that song, then it switches to a, a new song that's more upbeat and something that meshes with your with your mood at the moment. Is that um, 
Is that something that's going to take a lot of annotation leading up to getting it right? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure right now that the technology, everything is there to do that. I think in a simplistic manner, already looking at what your, uh, how, how long each song you're listening, there's a machine learning algorithm that totally understands what your preferences are and will give you the right songs every time. Uh, but uh, when it comes to really understanding your mimic expression, the technology is there. It's just someone has to put a camera and then understand what your emotions are. And I'm not sure if there is a solution right now, but the technology is there. Similar thing, uh, I had friends who, was built, who were building some solution. From web camera, for example, uh, they could identify looking at certain videos or images, how you feel, and then based on that, they would maybe suggest, uh, they would understand what kind of ads to show or uh, what you like or you don't like. So this emotion uh, detection is in in a, such a high level. I mean, it can detect whether you're smiling, what mood you are. Uh, it's, it's incredible, the technology already on that side. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. I wanted to circle back around to an example you used at the top of the show, and that is radiologists who are doing very specialized image annotation. I, I can't recall the exact timeline, but I think it was seven or eight years ago, one of these AI luminaries, it might have been Jan LeCun, said that we should stop training radiologists because there's, there's not going to be any need for their services in the future. And as an industry insider... I was wondering if you'd weigh in on the topic of technological unemployment, because this is on a lot of people's minds as we're watching ChatGPT crank out sales emails and tweets mm -hmm. and blog posts and various other things. I do content creation and SEO and copywriting myself. So it's, I'm looking at it like, well, is there even going to be anything for me to do in a couple of years? How do, how do you think about that? I mean, are you seeing any trends in that direction that worry you? Or are you completely unconcerned with it? Where do you come down on that? Yeah, that's a very good question and big worry, of course, across the world. Uh, this happened also in many revolutions happening, you know, industrial revolution, people in the farms would, uh, would really worry about, you know, uh, the factories are uh, taking our jobs, but then people move to the factories and eventually, you know, taxi drivers, right? Like eventually if they're autonomous cars, uh, they will not be taxi drivers. And, uh, of course, uh, technologies, other AI technologies like chat GPT, I think now the sense is that the person who knows how to use AI is going to replace the job rather than AI replacing your job. So right now it's super critical to kind of get familiar with these technologies because you have to use those. It's like, um, I don't know, in eighties, there were computers coming and people say, oh, computer is going to take my job. And there were so many simple tasks people were doing or feeling out some things so it was taking so long time right but then people started using computers and suddenly those who can use computers shift to other type of jobs like for example who would think uh, like 20 years ago that seo will be a significant job category so things are very heavily involving 
and it's much faster now than any time before. And that's my worry that that transition is happening too fast and the adaptation pace can be uh, can be a little bit hard. Education system is so outdated that it's going to be so hard to keep up from the educational perspective. This is my biggest worry. But other than that, after some time, I feel like uh, it's just going to help us to be much better and more efficient to what we're doing. And for example, right, we have so much free time, we can do things we love that 100 years, 200 years ago, people would just spend so much time at working in the fields. And I feel like there can be another jump in five years, 10 years, but within that time, there'll be some uh, maybe uh, disruption that the adaptation can be maybe painful. Yeah, technolo yeah. technological unemployment is a hot topic. And it looks to me like um, people are going to set their sights higher. When you're working, you and a piece of automation, you can accomplish 10 times what the average person today can accomplish in their lifetime, or you can accomplish 100 times or even 1,000 times more in your lifetime than somebody, somebody could 10, 20 years ago. So we're going to, I think we're going to start seeing people set their sights higher, that they're, they're going to set out to accomplish so much more over a certain period of time. And that that becomes the massive game changer that people haven't been anticipating. That's exactly. what it looks like to me. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, there definitely is going to be some uh, kind of heavy disruption and uh, people have to have to adapt, adjust. My my ideal like world case scenario is because we have so many more, so much more smarter machines that are making us more productive, there'll be better laws that will uh, let people, let's say, work, I don't know, from eight hours per day, maybe six hours per day or less, uh, while all the technology and gains will make sure that you benefit from it and have a better quality of life while working less and doing what you really love. Um, of course, this sounds like too uh, idealistic, but the everything, all the technologies there uh, that can potentially uh, get us there. I think that is a nice optimistic note to end on. Is there anything you would like to leave our audience with as we close up here? Uh, yeah, my last notes are just uh, anytime we don't need, we don't know uh, something, we uh, tend to kind of uh, get get afraid and freak out. I think instead of that, it's it's always good to kind of try to read, learn, and once you learn, you understand more, of course, what how that can help you, and then you start uh, getting afraid less. So never stop learning, especially on AI and understanding how AI machine learning works, and this will be the best thing that will happen to you in the next uh, several years to come. Learning is the antidote to fear. I like that a lot. Thanks so much, Tigran. Thanks. Thanks, Trent. Thanks, Thomas. Great chatting with you. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.